Well, good morning for those of you who are new to Faith Bible Church. I am Pastor Steve, and it's a joy to be with you today as we open up God's Word together. We are in a series in the book of Matthew, and encourage you this morning to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Right before Christmas, as we started into Matthew 1, we noted that the Apostle Matthew really had at least two major themes or purposes in writing this book. One was to show unbelieving Israel that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. The one that the Old Testament prophets had foretold that would sit on David's throne forever and ever reigning over a kingdom of righteousness. Matthew also wrote to encourage Jewish believers in their faith, to undergird them, to give them that encouragement they needed to continue on in their walk with Christ and flourish. We saw in chapter 1 as Matthew recorded the genealogy of Jesus, that listing of Jesus' ancestors, that Matthew particularly keyed in on the fact that David, excuse me, that that Jesus is both a descendant of David and of Abraham. Being a descendant of Abraham, he is in a position to be the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham that in him and his descendants, all of the nations of the earth could experience blessing. And then as a descendant of David, Jesus is in a position to be that fulfillment Of the promises God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Where God told David that his descendant would sit on his throne forever and ever over a kingdom of righteousness. And that that descendant would be considered a son of God. As Matthew continues to develop these themes, we came to the second half of Matthew chapter 1 where Jesus' birth by a virgin Mary shows how it would be possible for God to actually die. God cannot die just being God, but the second person of the Trinity took on humanity as 100% God, 100% man, lived a sinless life, In order, he took on humanity so that he could die to pay the penalty for all of our sin. In chapter 2, Matthew shows these wise men from the east bringing gifts fitting only for a king. And then we saw the current king of Israel, King Herod the Great, desiring to kill this new Infant king. Well, as we came to chapter 3 last week, we noted that King Jesus has a kingdom. And that kingdom is being offered by what Matthew recorded in the first part of chapter 3 by the ministry of John the Baptist. And John's message was simple repent for the kingdom. Of heaven is at hand. Now what he meant by that was this. And we looked at the book of Romans where it affirms this. That each and every person walks away from God. 
we willfully walk away from God. We are not seeking him with our lives. We choose to disobey him. To repent means to totally change the direction of our life with our heart, with our mind, with our emotions, and to stop walking away from God, choosing our own sinful pathway, and instead to come to him. And John the Baptist's message is this. You cannot enter the king's kingdom without acknowledging that you are a sinner. We cannot enter the king's kingdom without recognizing that each and every one of us are on this path away from God. There's no way to enter the kingdom until we acknowledge that I'm not worthy to enter the kingdom. That I'm a sinner. That you're a sinner. That's John's message. And John was baptizing people. And remember the root idea of baptism is the idea of identification. And he was asking people to identify with his message by being baptized. Meaning that by being baptized they're making a public statement saying I know I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to enter the kingdom. Well as John was sharing his message and baptizing people, we're going to see in the verses that we look at today, in verses 13 through 17 of Matthew 3, that Jesus approaches John and asks John to baptize him. And I want us to see two major truths today as we look at these few verses in Matthew 3. One, I want us to look for John the Baptist's heart. Because his heart needs to be my heart and your heart. And then I also want us to look to once again get a deeper glimpse of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he came to earth to do. I'm going to read these verses out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. Matthew chapter 3, starting to read in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee in the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, answering said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom... I am well pleased. Two major truths for us to see today. John the Baptist's heart. And the person and the work 
who he is and what he came to do of Jesus Christ. I've been thinking a lot about joy lately, just in my own life. And the fact that I should have joy in my life regardless of the circumstances that I'm in. And so I've just been looking at that in the scriptures and pondering that. And it's amazing how often that subject comes up in the Bible. And lately I have been spending quite a bit of time in the book of Isaiah. Just going really slow and just... Spending time there, reading some verses, praying over those verses. And I was in Isaiah 56 this week. And there's this really cool verse in Isaiah 56 that a portion of it says that I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. And I looked at that and said, well, that's a verse about joy. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. What was interesting to me was the very next line because the very next line was praising God because he accepted the worshiper's sacrifices. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us that for an Old Testament worshiper, they had to continue to have animal sacrifices made for them over and over and over again because it's just a bull, it's just a goat. The blood of a bull or goat can't take away sin. And the priest offering those sacrifices also is a sinner and so he had to make sacrifices for himself before he could help offer up sacrifices for the people. But we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ himself, who offered himself as a sacrifice without blemish, without sin. And his sacrifice paid the price for sin once for all. And as we think about what Jesus did for you and for me, by actually paying the penalty for all of our sin himself, and going through that excruciating death, And then to think about the fact that he didn't stay in the grave, but rose again from the grave, proving that he is God, and that the Father accepted his sacrifice, and he was seated at the right hand of the Father, because his work is finished. That truth is the basis of our joy. You know, we're not always happy. Life's hard. And there's lots of things that don't, Give us the emotion of happiness. But even if we're not happy. We can have joy. That settledness. That rests in the person of Jesus Christ. That knowledge that I am right with God. Because of that once for all sacrifice that he made for me. And in the book of Isaiah. That those two things are connected. Joy. And knowing that God has accepted the sacrifice. So as we come today to this little section of Matthew chapter 3. I hope it's encouraging for you. It's been encouraging to me because we see once again who Jesus is and why he came. In the fact that right from the very beginning of his ministry. He was resolute in one thing. 
He's going to carry out the Father's will and come so that he can die for the sin of the world. And then what an encouragement it is to see the heart of John the Baptist. I want to start there in verses 13 and 14 this morning. Just looking at John the Baptist's heart because his heart needs to be your heart. His heart needs to be my heart. That believers must always see their own need for cleansing and forgiveness. You see, John saw clearly that he was not exempt from his own message. John understood that just as he was telling the people who came out from Jerusalem and surrounding areas that they needed to recognize and acknowledge that they are sinners, he clearly knew that he's a sinner too. Jesus comes on the scene in verse 13. The little word then at the beginning of verse 13 is connecting us back into what's just been happening. You remember Jesus is preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's baptizing people who identify with that message saying, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to enter into the kingdom. And Jesus shows up and comes to John and asks John to baptize him. Look at John's response. In verse 14. But. John. Tried to prevent him. And that particular. uh, Construction of that verb. Prevent in the Greek text. Carries the idea of, of, of. Of John the Baptist. Pleading with Jesus. Trying to prevent him. Trying to, yeah, on a kind of a, a dirt of a repeating attempts to convince Jesus, no, you don't need this. Why was John so indignant about that? Because he knew he's got the spirit of God resting on him. He knew that there's no sin in the person of Jesus Christ. The New Testament affirms that for us. I'm going to read several verses just in quick succession. That remind us that Jesus Christ is sinless. No sin in him at all. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Hebrews 4.15 says this for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 says for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy Innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And finally, 1 John chapter 3 verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And so John the Baptist is just floored. Jesus, there's no sin in you. 
My baptism is, is people coming saying, I'm a sinner. You see, that is what John's baptism is. John's baptism is different from Christian baptism. Remember, at the very root of the word baptize is this idea of identifying. Identifying with someone or with something. For John's baptism, it was the the uh, Israelite coming saying, I'm identifying with John's message. I'm a sinner. But that's not Christian baptism. Christian baptism is a person saying, I want to be identified with the person of Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is God. I believe that he died for me and rose again from the dead. And I want to live for him. I want to be known as his follower. In fact, we're having a baptism service here on Easter morning, April 1st. And if you've not been baptized and you are a believer in the person of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to prayerfully consider being baptized here on April 1. Making that public statement. I'm a believer in Jesus and I want to be identified with him. Well, that's not John's baptism. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, T, Acts chapter 19, we see some, some of those who have been baptized with John's baptism being rebaptized now as believers in Jesus. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 3, it says, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with baptism of repentance. Telling the people to believe in him who's coming after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, now they were had put their trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And they wanted to make that public statement. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to be known that way. So Jesus comes to John. And John's very much aware of his baptism. He knows it's a public statement saying, I'm a sinner. And he's saying, Jesus, there's no sin in you. In fact, John is so upset about this that in verse 14, he uses two little words that most of the time aren't even included in a sentence like this in the Greek language. He uses a special word for I and he uses a special word for you. Normally, the verb in the Greek language, the form of the verb tells you if it's I or you. But here, John the Baptist includes the specific pronoun in both, in both sections. And basically, this is what John the Baptist is saying. He's almost like screaming out, I have need to be baptized by you. But you are coming to me. John's saying, it doesn't make sense. Now we're going to see why Jesus is coming in the next verses. But I want us to note John's heart here. Because John clearly understands that he's a sinner. We think, John the Baptist... This guy that had all the privileges of being the son of a priest in the nation of Israel. He could have had a great life following his father's footsteps. But he so yielded to the will of God. That he stepped aside from that good life that he could have had. 
and and answers the call to be God's mouthpiece, God's prophet. There hasn't been one for 400 years. And John the Baptist goes out of what could have been a very comfortable life and goes out into the desert and he's wearing really rough clothes and he's eating honey and bugs and he's totally yielded to God's direction in his life and yet John the Baptist is the first one to say I'm a sinner if anybody needs baptized here it's me John the Baptist said you see John realizes he's not exempt from his own message he realizes how much he needs grace And that's a very important thing for us to see because today, if any of us in this room who are followers of Jesus Christ stop seeing our own sin, we are on very dangerous ground. If we stop recognizing how much we need grace, we're on very dangerous ground. Recently, I was driving in my pickup and that indicator signal, that bell started going off, indicating that a seatbelt is not clasped. And the first thing that I did was look around on my pickup to see who didn't have their seatbelt on. Only to realize it was me. The bell tolled for me. It was me. But my first instinct was to look around and say, okay, who doesn't have their seatbelt on? It was me. You know, each and every one of us have an indicator in our own life. When we start getting on to trouble ground. Yesterday I was out chainsawing some wood on our pond. Tree had fallen out and I wanted to wait till I had thick ice. But we have an aerator out there and it's pretty near the end of that wood. And the closer I would get to the aerator, the thinner the ice would get. We have an indicator to tell us. When we start getting on thin ice, and that is this. If I start becoming critical of another believer's choices, or if I start becoming critical of the intentions of another believer's heart, which I can't know anyway, that's like that bell dinging in the background saying, are you forgetting How much you need grace? Are you forgetting that there's sin in your own heart? Why are you trying to look around and pick out someone else's? That's that indicator light. That's that bell. There's an interesting verse in the little book of 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. And it's interesting because it's just so clear. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. John's writing to Christians here. And here's what it says in very simple terms. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. 
And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says if we don't see our own sin in our own heart, in a sense saying, I'm not a sinner, we're liars. We're deceiving ourselves. And so John here, this one that all of us would hold up on a, on a pedestal, this one who's so yielded to God, is animate about this. I'm a sinner too. And John's heart needs to be our heart. Because we get on thin ice if we stop recognizing the sin in our own hearts. I need grace. You need grace. And it's interesting as we watch people. Believers will not be gracious with each other unless they recognize how much they personally need grace. I won't be gracious with someone else if I don't see my own need for grace. And John here gives us this wonderful picture of his heart. He's a sinner too. Well, Jesus explains to John that the baptism that he seeks is a different baptism than what John's been doing. Jesus isn't saying that he's a sinner here. In fact, Jesus tells us the purpose of him coming to be baptized in verse 15. And we're going to see in verses 15, 16, and 17 that in Jesus' baptism, there's actually encouragement there for us all. Because Jesus' baptism gives us a picture, once again, of his person and his work. Of who he is and why he came. All wrapped up in these verses. And we need that. We need encouragement strengthening and every time we see more of Jesus Christ it strengthens us in our walk with him and what we're going to see here is that Jesus being baptized actually gives opportunity for the fulfillment for, for the fulfillment once again of Old Testament scripture Strengthening our faith, undergirding our faith, 800 year, 1000 year old passages written before Jesus came. And by being baptized here, finding fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And I look at that and I say, yes, this isn't just a collection of ancient writings that 40 people over 1600 years thought, hey, I'm going to write something. I'm going to call it scripture. No, it's the spirit of God who undergirded these authors and carried them along. So what they wrote was his words. What they wrote was his word to us. And there's a unity of scripture. And as we see Old Testament scripture fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, it bolsters our faith and reminds us, I've got reasons for being a Christian. 
This isn't just a crutch because I feel weak. There is a rational reason for me to believe that Jesus is God, that he's the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, that this book is authored by God. It's God's word to me. And it strengthens us. It bolsters our faith. And as Jesus tells John in verse 15, permitted at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus tells John the purpose of why he wants to be baptized. Now, if we just had verse 15, We'd all, including me, sit here kind of scratching our heads saying, I don't quite understand. In fact, there are volumes written about what Jesus meant when he said, fulfill all righteousness. But verses 16 and 17 help us understand verse 15. And we're going to see that when Jesus said that he wants to be baptized now to fulfill all righteousness... We're going to see what Jesus meant by that based on verses 16 and 17. Because verses 16 and 17 show us that Jesus' baptism actually fulfills Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And in Jesus being baptized... And the Spirit of God coming down and resting on him. And then this voice that's going to come out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In those things happening, it's showing us who Jesus is. And it's showing us why he came. And by being baptized, Jesus is identifying, again that word, that's what baptism is. He's identifying with the Father's will for his life. And as he begins his earthly ministry, he begins it by yielding to the Father in obedience with this public display that he is indeed the the anointed one, the Messiah. And he's come to suffer for his people. Now look with me at verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. If you have a new American standard like I do, if they have he saw in a lowercase h insinuating that it's John the Baptist that saw. A lot of Bible teachers today believe that it's actually a reference to Jesus, that Jesus saw the Spirit coming down on him. Either way, the Spirit of God visibly is seen in the form or in the likeness of a dove coming and resting on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that has already been foretold that it would happen. Clear back in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 42 through about, for sure, 56, we have a section of Isaiah that focuses on what Bible teachers refer to as the suffering servant. Passages that ultimately are referring to the Messiah and his work, what he would do for his people. Now remember the word Messiah means anointed one. It's 
It uh, is a reference to that one promise in 2 Samuel 7. Where God told David, your descendant will sit on your throne, the Davidic throne, forever and ever over a kingdom of righteousness. And that anointed one, that king, became known as the Messiah. The Greek equivalent to that is the Christ. And so by Jesus being baptized and this dove coming down on him, we see that it affirms that Jesus is the one that's pictured in Isaiah 42 through 53. Now what happens in Isaiah 53? Very familiar passage. In Isaiah 53, we see this servant of God paying for our sin. I'm going to read just a section of it. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crossed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see that, that prophecy that this servant of God, this Messiah... The anointed one would actually be the one who deals with our sin problem by dying for us. Now that same servant that's referred to in Isaiah 53 is being referred to in Isaiah 42. Look with me in Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. I will bring forth justice to the nations. So when Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 is baptized, the Spirit of God visibly comes down and rests on him. Bam, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 said that the Spirit of God would come and rest on the servant of God. And he would institute justice, righteousness in this kingdom. What did Jesus say was his purpose for being baptized? Back in verse 15, to fulfill all righteousness. You see, by being baptized and having the Spirit of God come down on Jesus. It's highlighting the reason why Jesus came. It's highlighting his ministry. And in obedience to the Father, Jesus begins his public ministry by being baptized. Identifying with God's purpose for him. I'm here to die. Now the second thing that happens is as Jesus comes up out of the water and that... The Spirit of God comes down in the appearance of a dove. This voice speaks from heaven. And it tells us here in verse 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Once again fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. If you keep your finger there and turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is clearly a psalm that its ultimate fulfillment is in the Messiah. And in Psalm 2 verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, 
Psalm 2, Psalm 89, verses 26 through 29. 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 through 14. We've referred to it several times, the Davidic covenant. All say that the Messiah, this anointed one who will sit on David's throne forever, will be a son to God. What does this voice say? What does the voice of God the Father say? This is my son. So Jesus being baptized... And the Spirit of God coming down upon him. And this voice of heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. All affirm that Jesus is the fulfillment to what was prophesied in the Old Testament. That he is the Messiah. It affirms it so much that if you turn to John chapter 1 verse 34... John the Baptist affirms that Jesus' baptism is what convinced him that Jesus is indeed God. And John verse 134 says, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You see, when we get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, it just bolsters our faith. Every time I see Old Testament scripture... Like Isaiah 42, Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7. Every time we see these Old Testament passages finding fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And those Old Testament passages are written at 800 BC, 1000 BC, 800 years, 1000 years later. They find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It just bolsters my face some more. Year or two ago... So one of these pews right up here in this quadrant, there was a crack in the pew. And you knew there was a crack because if you sat in it, it, you heard it and you could feel it. Well, Steve Getkin, who does an awesome job of just caring for this physical building, went out and bought some steel. I mean, he bought some steel. And he took that piece of steel and undergirded that pew it's the strongest pew in the building right now you could have an elephant sit on that pew well that may be a little tough on the pew you could have something really big sit on that pew it's strong it's stronger than it's ever been before because it's been undergirded and that's what passages like Matthew 3 do for us It just affirms our faith. It reminds us that there's reasons for me to believe that this is God's word. Because I see all of this Old Testament scripture coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. And I see Matthew's historical account of it. And then I go to Luke and I see Luke's historical account of it. And then I go to John and I see... The Apostle John writing saying, this is what convinced me that he's indeed God. And it just bolsters our faith. It just reminds us once again, there are substantive reasons for believing that Jesus is God. And that there's substantive reasons for believing that this book is not just a collection of nice sayings. It's God's word to us. It bolsters our faith. And so we find in John the Baptist. A heart 
that needs to be our heart. Quick to recognize I need grace. I need what Jesus has for me. And I continue to need it. Even though I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe in him. That I've come to that point where I recognize my sin. And I put my trust in Jesus. Believing that he's God. And he died for me on the cross and rose again. And apart from him. The only thing that awaits me is an eternity in hell. I've already done that. I put my trust in Jesus Christ. But I still need grace. Because as John tells me in 1 John 1.8. I still sin. I still do things and think things that are contrary to his very character. And because he's my creator. He has the right to demand of me sinlessness. I need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ. And then we see once again. This glimpse of Jesus' total obedience. That there's no sin in him. That he's a suitable sacrifice. And that by being baptized, he begins his ministry. Totally yielded to the Father. Identifying with the Father's purpose. Knowing. It's one thing not to know. But he knew what's waiting for him. Just a few years down the road. This grotesque death. That he didn't deserve. But by being baptized. He identifies with the father's purpose. And he begins his ministry as the anointed one. And the father has affirmed that he is his son. And we see not only his person. That he is the son of God affirmed. But his work. Why he came. He came To die as our once for all sacrifice for sin. You may be here today and you're not sure if you're right with God or not. Or maybe you're here today and you just want to spend some time praying this morning. One of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church, one of our elders will be right behind you in the prayer room. Encourage you to go back and just spend some time visiting, spend some time in prayer this morning before you leave today. Father, we thank you. That in Jesus Christ, we have hope. We thank you that his baptism affirms to us his person and his work. And in John the Baptist's model, we are reminded just how much we need him. Help us to be people of grace as we recognize how much we need your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.